the death penalty or capital punishment has been abolished in Australia for many years now. Over the last couple of weeks, I've looked back at two cases, Jean Lee and Ronald Ryan, who were the last female and last male to be executed in Australia, and the controversy over their convictions that still remains today. Tonight, I'll read out the open letter from Ryan's barrister, Dr Philip Opus QC. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Okay, so in part one, I talked about the last woman to hang, Jean Lee, and in part two, about the last man and last person to be executed in Australia, Ronald Ryan. This week, I'll read out the open letter that Ryan's QC wrote. So I'll get straight into it and let him tell the story. It's titled, The Innocence of Ronald Ryan, by Dr. Philip Opus QC, September 10, 2002. My attention has been drawn to an article on Ronald Ryan. I vehemently disagree with the assertion in the article that Ronald Ryan was guilty. I have written a response, The Innocence of Ronald Ryan, which has been published in the Criminal Bar Association of Victoria newsletter, Spring 2002. I believe I am in a better position than anyone else to discuss the Ronald Ryan case as most of those involved are now deceased. I seek to make a last plea for someone who did not deserve to die. Please allow me one last attempt to put the record straight. Make it available for anyone who might want to do research into the Ronald Ryan case or research into capital punishment. I will go to my grave firmly of the opinion that Ronald Ryan did not commit murder. I refuse to believe that at any time he told anyone that he did. When all hope of a reprieve had gone and he had decided that he might as well declare his guilt, if that was the fact, there are two people whom I believe he would have told, and they were Father Brosnan and me. Father Brosnan and I have formed a lifelong friendship since the hanging, and Father Brosnan has told me that Ryan never made any admission to guilt of guilt to him. Father Brosnan did not hear Ron's final confession, which enabled Ryan to die in a state of grace. Ryan always vehemently denied to me that he fired the shot that killed the warder, Hodson. The last time I saw him was the day before I left for London to seek leave to appeal from the Privy Council. I told him frankly that I did not expect to succeed on mere questions of law, although I was heartened by the action of Sir John Barry, who had rung me a few days before to tell me that he had presided at a hearing of the Court of Appeal, which had come to decision to a decision diametrically opposed to that reached by the three justices who had heard Ryan's appeal. He told me his decision might help me and asked me to see his associate and obtain a copy of the unanimous decision hot off the typewriter. 
one of the legal points decided against Ryan turned on the time when the felony of escaping from prison ended. The trial judge, Justice Stark, followed an old New South Wales case which held that the felony of escaping continued right up to recapture. In Ryan's case, 19 days later. Therefore, if the shooting took place outside the jail, which it did, the Crown did not have to prove intent and the felony murder rule applied. Therefore, manslaughter was not a possible verdict and the judge refused to leave it to the jury. My contention, and that of Jack Lazarus for Walker, was that the escape was complete when the two prisoners escaped from the prison and were outside the control and custody of those in charge. Therefore, the felony murder rule did not apply because the murder was not in the course of the felony of escape, and intent was an essential ingredient of the charge, which had to be proved beyond reasonable doubt by the prosecution. Thus, manslaughter had to be considered by the jury, even though the defence was that Ryan had never fired a shot. Justice Barry, in a different case, agreed with our contention and refused to follow the case relied on by Justice Stark. We therefore had at the appellant level six justices evenly divided on whether the felony murder rule applied in the circumstances of Ryan and Walker. I informed Ryan that I would do my utmost to stress before the Privy Council the serious difference of opinion between six senior justices of this state and that this was a worthy case to require their adjudication. Nevertheless, I told him that I would probably fail as the Privy Council rarely intervened in criminal matters. I said that we were largely playing for time to create a groundswell of public opinion that would prevent the government from carrying out its declared intention of executing him. Ryan replied, We've all got to go sometime, but I don't want to go this way for something I didn't do. Then he smiled and added, You know, mate, we're playing time on. If you don't kick a goal soon, we're going to lose this match. We shook hands, and that is the last time I saw him. One of the last things Ryan did was to write me a letter that I never received. Perhaps it may turn up at Sotheby someday. He showed it to Father Brosnan, and I am indebted to him for informing me of the contents. It expressed deep gratitude for the efforts I had made on his behalf and went on to ask that I attend the hanging as he wanted to look on the face of a friend as his last vision on earth. I did not attend the hanging. Apart from any question of Ryan admitting guilt, I am of the opinion that not only did he not fire a shot, but that he could not have fired the shot that killed the water. I rely on facts that could neither lie nor be mistaken. The bullet that killed Hodson was never recovered. It passed right through the body. It was never proven that the M1 carbine held by Ryan ever fired a shot while in his possession. 
during the war. I served for nearly six years on active service in the RAAF and was proficient in weaponry, although that did not include the M1 carbine, which was not then used by our forces. My instructor, Alan Douglas, the public solicitor, served with the AIF and ended the war as a lieutenant colonel also proficient in weaponry. At the time of the trial, I was an active reservist in the RAAF and I arranged for Douglas and me to spend about three hours at the Butts at Laverton under instruction from a senior armaments officer. Between us, we fired about 600 rounds from an M1 carbine. We observed and measured muscle velocity, penetrability, range and general characteristics of the weapon using the same smokeless cartridges that according to the evidence were loaded in the magazine of the weapon which Ryan took from the tower at Pentridge. I believe that by the time of the trial I knew more about the M1 carbine than did the ballistics expert called by the prosecution. In fairness to him, he knew a lot more about a large variety of weapons but Douglas and I were concentrated on one only. We confirmed that unlike the Lee Enfield 303 rifle familiar to infantrymen, which had two distinct pressures, the M1 carbine was fired immediately by a comparatively light pressure on the trigger and continued firing until the finger was removed. M1 carbines had no recoil, so that it did not jerk back the shoulder of the firer. As smokeless cartridges were used, no smoke was emitted from the barrel. Therefore, witnesses who spoke of seeing Ryan's shoulder jerk back and seeing smoke from the barrel were drawing on imagination. The evidence was unchallenged that when Ryan took the carbine, it was loaded with eight rounds. Seven were positively accounted for. If the eight could also be accounted for, then Ryan could not have killed Hodson. The vital witness on this aspect was the water in the tower at Pentridge from which Ryan seized the carbine. He was Helmut Lang. In the witness box, he described how Ryan's first action was to activate the bolt on the carbine. But according to Lang, he did this while the safety catch was on. The result had to be, as he agreed, to eject a live cartridge. Lang said that he did not find that cartridge, but that did not affect the position that every cartridge in the magazine had been accounted for without Ryan firing a shot. The evidence that the carbine had fired a shot was most unsatisfactory and inconclusive. While on the run for 19 days... Ryan and Walker drove a car to Sydney by an indirect route that took them via the Riverina and Hay during a hot summer period with no rain. The carbine was in the boot of the car. The ballistics expert examined the carbine when it was retrieved and gave evidence that it appeared to him that it had not been cleaned since it was last fired. Under cross-examination, He said that he did not take any sample from the barrel to test for residue from gunpowder or cordite. 
He agreed that it was inevitable that the barrel would be dusty while being carried through a drought-stricken rural area. The most he could say was that the barrel appeared dirty, but he could not say what caused the dirt. He could not say that the weapon had been in fact fired since it was last cleaned. A few years after Ryan was hanged, I received a phone call from a man with a strong German accent. I cannot be more precise about the date as I did not note it. He refused to give his name, but he said that Helmut Lang had been a friend of his. Lang came from East Prussia and they were both members of the Austrian club in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, where they often met for a drink and a chat in their native language. He said Lang told him that he had been on duty in the tower when Ryan seized the weapon from the rack. The first thing that Ryan did was to work the bolt on the carbine. Ryan did not seem to know much about the gun because the safety catch was on and this resulted in bullets being thrown out onto the floor. Lang picked up the bullets and later on made a written report which he handed to his superior. At that time, an inquiry was being conducted in the prison to see whether any warders had helped the prisoners to escape. About two weeks later, while Ryan and Walker were still being hunted, Lang was called before his superior and asked to make another report omitting all references to finding any bullet. Lang refused at first, but he was threatened with being charged with conspiring with the prisoners to help them escape. Because he wanted to keep his job, Lang made another report as asked. After the hanging, Lang became very worried about the false evidence he had given and in 1969 he was informed that he had been awarded a commendation for bravery for his actions during the escape and he was ordered to go to Government House to receive the award. He believed this was a payback for giving false evidence and he refused to go. Eventually, he was presented with the award at Pentridge by the governor of the jail. On the 12th of April 1969, while on duty in the tower at Pentridge, Lang committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. I took no action on this phone call and I have no means to verify the statements. I suggested to the caller that he convey this information to the police. For some reason, he was clearly afraid of the police and hung up. However, this only confirmed what I have always believed, namely that Lang lied in the witness box. The ejection of the round made it impossible for Ryan to have committed murder. Confirmation is further obtained from what I contend is evidence that cannot lie. Before the trial, I attended three autopsies and borrowed a skeleton from the anatomy school at Melbourne University to understand fully the course that the bullet took through the body of the deceased. I obtained from the pathologist under cross-examination that he measured meticulously the diameter of the wounds of entry and exit. They were identical, showing without question that the bullet had not been deflected in its path. Had there been any deviation, 
the wound of exit would have been larger than the wound of entry, as bits of bone and other material would have enlarged the wound of exit. In the result, there was no contest that the bullet entered between the first and second rib on the right side and came out between the second and third rib on the left side, one inch lower than it went in. As they were both standing on level ground, it was impossible for Ryan, being 5 foot 8 inches, to shoot in a downward trajectory to cause the wounds on Hodson, 6 foot 1 inch. I was at pains to get from every eyewitness who gave evidence that when shot, Hodson was running upright so as to present his full height as a target. Murray commented to the jury that Hodson might well have been bending over. The evidence was all one way. Hodson was running upright as one would expect from a heavily built man who had just had Christmas dinner and was keeping his eye on the man he was pursuing. All independent eyewitnesses disposed to hearing only one shot. A warder, Patterson, a very excitable Scott, gave evidence that at the relevant time he came out of the main gate at Pentridge armed with an identical M1 carbine to that taken by Ryan. He stood on top of the low stone wall surrounding the garden in front of the jail and took aim at Ryan. He took a first pressure on the carbine, which as stated above would instantly fire it, but saw a woman in the way, so he pulled the gun up and taking a second pressure fired harmlessly into the air. Taking aim at Ryan, he would only have to miss him by about half a degree and he would hit Hodson in the very way that in fact he was struck. By standing on the low wall, he would have necessary height to fire in a downward trajectory. Patterson had made three conflicting statements. In the first, he said he he heard only one shot. In the other two, he said he heard two shots. If he did, he was the only witness who heard them. From memory, I think there were 14, not 11, in a position to see and hear what took place. If Ryan had fired a shot, someone other than Patterson should have heard it. I wouldn't have hanged a dog on Patterson's evidence. Ryan was the unfortunate victim of the Premier's determination to a hanging. After the appeal to the High Court was dismissed, a petition to the Privy Council seeking leave to appeal was filed. That was the signal for the Premier to set a date for execution before that petition could be heard. I drew a statement of claim in a writ seeking an injunction to restrain the hanging until the final outcome of the Privy Council petition. I failed both before the judge of first instant, Mahenet J, and the full court to obtain the injunction on the ground of lack of jurisdiction. Nevertheless, the full court said that it was unthinkable that a man should be executed before he had exhausted his ultimate right of appeal. Reluctantly, 
the Premier deferred the execution. He then directed the public solicitor to withdraw my brief as the government was not going to fund the petition. I consulted the Ethics Committee of the Bar Council to seek approval to make public appeal for a solicitor prepared to brief me as I was prepared to pay my travel and other expenses and appear without fee. The Ethics Committee said that this would be touting for business and was unethical. I argued that a man's life was at stake and I could not see how I would be touting when no payment was involved. I defied the ruling and on radio sought an instructor. As one might expect, I was inundated with offers. I accepted the first application, being from an old friend, Ralph Friedman. Two Labour Party stalwarts, Val Dubé and Barry Jones, headed an anti-hanging committee and offered me a return fare to London but could not fund my junior, Brian Burke. I accepted the offer and as luck would have it, Aline Kittle was in London completing a master's degree and she, de- and she agreed to take a junior brief at a fee of two-thirds of nothing. As readers would know, theoretically, an appeal to the Privy Council is a vestigial remnant of an appeal to the Sovereign in person. The Privy Council gives an opinion always ended with and we shall so humbly advise Her Majesty. The actual decision is simply a few lines published in the Government Gazette announcing that the appeal has been allowed or dismissed. Theoretically, it is possible, but extremely unlikely, that Her Majesty may give a decision contrary to the advice of the Judicial Committee. Sir Henry Balty took no chance of that occurring. Ryan was hanged on the 3rd of February 1967. The decision of Her Majesty in the Privy Council to refuse leave to appeal was gazetted on the 10th of February. My involvement did not end there. I was called on to show cause before the Bar Council why I should not be struck off the roll for flouting the the direction of the Ethics Committee. I decided to ignore the proceeding and make no answer. I was ultimately persuaded by many colleagues that I had to fight and allow my choice from many volunteers to represent me. I agreed reluctantly, but only on condition that personally I would take no part. Dick McGarvey, with Ivor Greenwood as his junior, appeared for me. The job of prosecuting me fell to the junior Silk, who happened to be Ninian Stephen. He was a friend of mine, and I hope he still is. I was present in body, but not in mind. What happened is a blank, except that at the end I was unanimously acquitted. The chairman, Louis Vimard, remarked, What the bar needs is more Philip Opuses, not one less. I have no regrets about my conduct. I don't think I would act differently in the same circumstances today. I will always be troubled by the feeling that Ryan should have been acquitted and that I must have been inadequate for the task of defending him. 
at least so long as capital punishment is kept off the statute books, no member of the bar will have to visit the occupant of the condemned cell and discuss with him or her the chance of living or dying. It is a heavy burden when in the last analysis it may all depend on you. Philip Opus. So, there you go. I'll just go over the couple of the main points in his letter. The first was the time that the felony for escaping the jail started and finished. Now, was it at the time they cleared the prison grounds or when they were finally recaptured? This is very important. Opus argued that the felony ceased as soon as they got out. Now, that means that when Hodson was killed, that Ryan could have been found guilty of manslaughter and not murder. But what the judge decided was that the felony finished when Ryan was recaptured 19 days later. The judge used a case in New South Wales in making this decision as there were very few precedents for him to draw on. Now this is dodgy when you're talking about taking someone's life. If the judge had not followed that precedent, the jurors, they could have still found Ryan guilty of murder, but he could have had the chance to be found guilty of manslaughter as well. In Ryan's case, he could only be found guilty or not guilty of murder. And with a guilty verdict, he would get the death penalty. The second part of this letter was in regards to whether or not Ryan actually fired the gun at all. As you can see, Ryan's QC went to great lengths to understand the characteristics of the M1 carbine used at the prison. With no recoil and using smokeless cartridges, how did the witnesses see Ryan's shoulder jerk back and have smoke come out the end? Well, as Opus said, these things creep into people's memories. That's why the witnesses' evidence should not be given so much weight. The M1 carbine was not even forensically tested to see if it in fact fired a shot at all. In fact, as I said last week, Ryan stated he kept the M1 so he could prove he did not fire that shot. He could have easily destroyed or chucked the gun away while on the run but he chose to keep it with him. They had and they were able to easily get other guns, so keeping a gun that had been fired would be stupid. The trajectory that the bullet passed through Hodson also gives a high level of doubt as to whether Ryan fired the shot. He just wasn't tall enough to do it. Now, the bit about Lang finding the ejected bullet, confessing to his friend that later called Opus, now, it's only hearsay, but it does make sense in the overall scheme of things. If Ryan did eject the live round and didn't fire at Hodson, then someone else did, and it would have had to been another prison guard. 
and this gives weight to the allegations of a cover-up. In the end, I reckon Ryan's actions that day did bring about the death of George Hodson. I don't believe Ryan fired the fatal shot. I believe that he should have been punished, but not by hanging. What do you think, Islanders? Comment on the Facebook or Twitter. So that's about all for this week's episode. Now we'll get into some housekeeping and Patreon shoutouts. But first, thanks so much to Barney Black from Bloody Murder Podcast for the fan art he did this week. Check it out on Facebook. Barney, the fans have gone wild buying up t-shirts with your artwork and a mug of boom fuckalunga is coming your way. Thanks to Talila, Lotus Blossom and Essa from Once Upon a Crime. Now that's a great podcast. Uh, go and check it out. You'll subscribe for sure. They've been the new patrons on the island this week. Of course, thanks to all existing, existing Patreons. And the goal of my replacement PC is getting so much closer. In fact, I'll start looking for prices uh, this coming week. To become a patron of the island, go to patreon.com True Crime Island. And for as little as a dollar a month, you get commercial free weekly episodes. All money goes back into the show to keep the island afloat. If you just want to donate on a one off basis, then you can PayPal to the island at Cambo at True Crime Island. A big shout out to Karen Silverstein Rodrigue for that lovely PayPal donation. But Everyone gets commercial-free episodes every week regardless. True Crime Island will always stay commercial-free. You can show your, your support in other ways, but just sharing or reviewing at the usual places. It all does help. The website is truecrimeisland.com and there's a button to get merchandise such as t-shirts, hoodies and mugs to show your support for the island and the look cool at the same time as i said before there's a new barney black boom fuckalunga artwork to get your hands on in many styles for all genders and age there are mugs tote bags as well now i did have an issue with my t-shirt i got from threadless as i've said the last couple of weeks but i did email them them a photo and they will replace it So if you have bought merchandise and you aren't happy, please let them know so they can help you out. And also, I would love to know as well. Koozie or beer coolers and stickers can be purchased as well. Just email me at cambo at truecrimeisland. They're not on the merch side. You have to get them directly from me and I post them with all my love. Of course... Don't forget to find the island on Facebook. Just do a search for True Crime Island and join the closed group. You can friend me on Facebook as well. Just search for Cambo Ford. I do have a promo this week for a new podcast called True Crime Sweden. So look out for that. This is amazing. It's only a few episodes old, but get in it, on it, in it early. It is a great podcast. One last thing. Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder Podcast, Broderick from Felon and I are getting together for a chat on December 16 in Melbourne. We've also got the True Crime Sisters coming. 
Now, you're welcome to come along. Just let Tara or myself know in case you do want to come, just in case we get thousands and thousands of people. It was just going to be ourselves, but we did decide to invite listeners along. So uh, we may have more podcasters as well, but I don't know. So that's in two weeks' time. More details as they come to hand, and it will be on our respective Facebook and Twitter feeds. So that's in Melbourne, December the 16th. So that's all, folks. I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Hi. I'm Pernilla from the True Crime Sweden podcast. I cover cases from Sweden, but of course it's all told in English. Recently I covered the case about Kim Wall, who went out on the submarine and never came back. Don't miss it. You can find me on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search for True Crime Sweden. Thank you.